This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Healthcare has been trained to see a patient, deal with that patient in front of them, solve their immediate issue, and kind of send them back to the community. That works in a time when most of our healthcare costs are driven by bugs and bacteria, but that's not what's driving our healthcare costs. The healthcare industry's role in the future of public health, today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto, and I've been so excited to bring you this conversation between HFMA President and CEO Joe Pfeiffer and Dr. Brian Castrucci, CEO of the DeBeaumont Foundation, whose focus is improving public health through policy and partnerships. This discussion offers a lot from an industry perspective and from a community perspective, and I think you'll find it thought-provoking. I do want to make one quick editorial note. This conversation gets into policy and politics, which isn't something that we typically do on this podcast or at HFMA. In fact, it's the position of the association to remain neutral in political matters. The views expressed by Dr. Castrucci here are not necessarily those of HFMA or anyone associated with this podcast, including Joe. What we do think is that the topics discussed, cost effectiveness of health, trust in the industry, the future of public health, are incredibly important and worth discussing. Here's Joe. Well, I'm really excited today for our guest, and that's because among many things that we've been talking about a lot of over the last few years or so is two issues have become front and center. One that is epidemiology, and the other is public health. And I am really excited today because our guest is Dr. Brian Castrucci, who is an epidemiologist who has worked in state and local health departments and is now at the DeBeaumont Foundation, which is an organization dedicated to advancing public health through policy and partnerships. And over the last few years, he's written and talked quite a bit about COVID-19 and vaccinations. And of course, we'll be talking about that today. But also public health goes well beyond this pandemic. And that's also seen differently today than it was a few years ago. So, Dr. Castrucci, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I think back two years ago, and those of us in the industry probably heard this term of epidemiologist, but that was not a term that was widely known, you know, throughout society. And I just wondered, you know, gosh, if you could go back two years, did many people even know what it meant to be your profession, the epidemiologist, and how has that changed over the last two years? Yeah, I don't think people knew what an epidemiologist was. I don't know that they necessarily even knew where their local health department was or who their health official was. And I do think that's changed a bit. Uh, Public health is now much more in the spotlight, but it's something that we're really rarely, if ever, acculturated to understand. Like when I was a kid, you play doctor, you play teacher, you play fire chief. Rarely does anyone play epidemiologist, right? Melissa and Doug don't have an epidemiologist dress up kit. 
or a public health official dress up kit. And I think now we're understanding that it's like, if you're thinking about trapeze artists, public health, the net. And the problem that we've had in this country is we have been slowly eroding that net. We've been making all of these little cuts. And so when we finally fell off the trapeze, there was nothing there to catch us. And, and that's what we have to fix going forward. We have to rebuild our public health system because you know nothing short of the safety, security, and economic prosperity of our nation hangs in the balance. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I I go back to my years of being a, a CFO, and you know, I would hear the, the term public health, but gosh, we were so engaged in fee-for-service healthcare that I didn't really pay attention to it. And even as a CFO and we had a public health building right on our campus, I still didn't even know, you know really thoroughly the role that they played. And that's been exposed in so many ways, which kind of leads into my next question. So much of public health is rooted outside of what we think as healthcare in this country. And again, largely because of fee-for-service payment methodologies, you know, issues like homelessness and hunger or lifestyle issues have a huge impact on health. But, you know, our industry just has not been poised to tackle these issues head on. Again, from my perspective, largely because of the payment system. So I guess my question now that this is getting outed, <laughs> to use that term, what is our responsibility here and what should we be doing to bring about change? I mean, it's more important than just knowing about it. There's a funding mechanism here. So what do you think our responsibility is? Well, I think we have to understand the symbiotic nature of, of health and healthcare, right? Of public health and, and healthcare. And in some ways, I think healthcare has been put in a really difficult position because people came to healthcare and said, look, homelessness, that's impacting your patients. So you should solve that problem. And healthcare kind of said, well, okay, we're, we're going to take that on. When, when healthcare should have said, that's not our problem. Mm -hmm. That's a societal problem. That's a government problem. It's not something healthcare can solve alone. So you think about something like, you know, hunger and food insecurity. When you think about hunger, of course, you're going to see patients whose illnesses are exacerbated by hunger or whose engagement with the ER is driven by hunger. And yes, healthcare can say, look, here's some food for tonight. But that doesn't help that person's neighbor and it surely doesn't help them the next night. What we need to do is, is have better partnerships between government, public health, and healthcare to say, look, here's what our data are showing us. Here's where all the people who are, are expressing issues around hunger, here's where they're coming from. And so now let's work together. And, and the challenge is it's not really, it's not a clinical play from healthcare. It's sometimes an economic play. And healthcare would say, listen, here's where our food insecurity problem is in our community. We're going to put a low interest loan on the street to help bring in a grocery store. And you know what you're going to do, uh, city council, is make sure that that you lower taxes on this new you know, grocery store. And then we're going to work with public health to engage the community to understand what kind of grocery store, what kind of food folks want in that community. If we do that synergistically, we will solve a lot of our health care issues. The problem is we're each working in our silo. And so if I had a nickel for every time someone said, oh, we're dealing with food insecurity because we've opened a pantry in our hospital, it's like you're not dealing with food insecurity. You're dealing with temporal hunger, which isn't bad. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And so we need to really 
make sure that healthcare is working like any employer in our community to support public health so that public health can be there to help healthcare and be a strong partner in sourcing community-wide solutions. I think you're kind to say that healthcare has tackled that issue because I've heard healthcare executives say, you know, because of the payment environment, in as many words, not my problem, right? And so I think you're even kind to say that that healthcare has addressed it. But even when they have addressed it, it sounds like they're addressing it as an acute issue and not the chronic issue that it really is. Healthcare is addressing it as healthcare has been trained. Yes. Right? Healthcare has been trained to see a patient, deal with that patient in front of them, solve their immediate issue, and kind of send them back to the community. That works in a time when most of our healthcare costs are driven by bugs and bacteria. But that's not what's driving our healthcare costs, mm-hmm. right? Like if you're a diabetic, you didn't catch it, right? <laughs> if right. you're a hypertensive, you didn't catch it. Yep. And so how we're working together to solve these issues collectively is what we need. Like let's take pediatric asthma. Kids can come into your hospital all the time, into the ER with asthma. And you're going to solve that issue and you're going to send them home. But if the issue is the air quality in the apartment, mm-hmm. then there's nothing healthcare can do except send them back to the cause of their disease. And you know, here's the thing that's disappointing is that we as a culture, we built a robot, we put it in a rocket ship, and we sent it to Mars and it got out and it, like it was a tourist. It took photos and sent us photos. But if I got 20 kids who are all living in a single apartment complex, hitting the ER with repeated asthma, because those kids are on different insurances with different primary care providers and go into different ERs, we'll never find that cluster of kids. Hmm. So if we can get a robot to Mars, can we not figure out a way to find those 20 kids and deal with the issue, which is the HVAC in their apartment, not some you know, biological, physiological issue. It's that. And so what we need is healthcare to, to chime in and say, well, we'll work with that property owner. We will put out a low interest loan to change that HVAC and then work together to improve the quality of the air in that building. That's how we solve our healthcare problem. Yeah. And it's not a clinical play, it's an economic play. Yeah. You know, if that's not a hard enough issue to solve already with the complexity of the, in essence, public private partnerships and all that. I, I want to take it to a, another level of complexity, if I might. Recently, in an interview with Modern Healthcare, you talked about how a poor public health infrastructure set the stage for COVID to devastate the country. And if you look at some of the data around infections and deaths, it seems to prove that point. According to the Associated Press, Black and Hispanic Americans have less access to medical care, have higher rates of certain conditions, such as diabetes and hypertension. They're also more likely to be essential workers and are more likely to live in multi-generational households. You know, on and on and on. You can see where those complexities start to build up. And so anyway, when you add all that together, it's you step back and say, well, it's not surprising that they're getting COVID and dying at higher rates than white people, but they're also less likely to be vaccinated than white people because of distrust in the healthcare system. So, gosh, I just layered on several levels of complexity Along those lines, we have a long way to go with rebuilding that trust in healthcare. What should we be doing to try to rebuild that trust to solve some of that multi-layer complexity that I speak of? All of the issues that we see in COVID have been there for a long time. 
COVID is the spotlight, not the cause. And it's fascinating that we had, you know, forgotten low wage workers that we all of a sudden deemed essential, but nothing came along with that term, except you had to keep going to work. Right. Where was the enhanced uh, hazard pay or death benefit? Should someone, you know, still do that job and then die? What about health care for their families? What about any of the things that one would expect if you are giving of yourself to the community and to keep our society moving? And all we did was say, you're essential, go to work. And so this unjust system that we are often a part of, that we had 121 consecutive months of economic growth through the end of 2019, but the federal minimum wage didn't go up at all, mm -hmm. right? We have to look at things like a fair wage, controlling housing costs, paid sick leave for one of two industrialized nations that doesn't have a national paid sick leave standard. But you do have cities, San Antonio, Texas, they, they put a regulation in place that said any employer with one employee or more had to offer paid sick leave. Mm. That's, a better, that's a better place to be sick. They're going to have an easier time through this pandemic because they've enacted the policies that actually will help people operate effectively in our culture. And then when you look at trust, I think that's an, another really interesting point. Like, we didn't know that there was a history of systemic bias in healthcare, starting with Tuskegee. Mm. We didn't know that this would be, but we knew this. We knew this before this pandemic. We should have known this in pandemic planning. Like if we ever had to roll out mass vaccination, distrust of healthcare among certain communities would be a problem. But we didn't do anything. That's where we have to begin to engage communities and center communities in our conversations and in our, in our pandemic preparedness. You know, right now, just having you know, justice and, and equality as a slogan doesn't really help anybody. We need real policy change. We need to get people involved in decision making. We have to, when we're engaging the community, don't just ask them to volunteer, you know, pay them for their time and their expertise. Because it's often like for, for you and I, Joe, that's not the expertise we have. Mm -hmm. We need that expertise and we need to make the game different. And the only way you change a game. And its outcomes are by changing the rules. That's policy, right? We need real policy change that helps us to get to a more just and equitable society, not just saying that we want it. There are actual things that have to change. I, uh, I have to laugh. I was listening to you. Couldn't agree more that 121 months of, of economic expansion, no matter where you sit politically, was a missed opportunity for us to deal with a lot of issues in our society. You know, we just go about our ways. And if those issues don't affect us personally, you know, we just ignore them. And and my guess is that's a lot of what you're referring. Again, whether you're, you know, red or blue, you can't argue that we had 121 months and overall our society really didn't improve over that time period. And, and you know, I'm not against capitalism. I'm not against people making money. But let's just take an example of I own uh, an apartment building. And there's someone in my apartment building that they pay their rent, they go to work down the street, their kids are in school, it's a great, they're doing great. They're doing everything we said, this is what you should do, you know, to be mm -hmm. a productive member of society. But then a new company moves in next door to my apartment building that I own. And all of a sudden, I can like quintuple the rent. It's mm -hmm. like I hit the lottery. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to displace all those people in my apartment building. 
for people who will pay quintuple. And then all of a sudden, that, that person who had that job and their kids were in school, they're now staying at an extended stay because when they came to renew their lease, I'm like, hey, I'm jacking up the rent. Mm-hmm. There are ways to protect people from that. For property owners to get a fair increase in their rent, but at the same time protecting renters. Now, when, when those renters end up being evicted, it's often, you know, we blame them. It's like, oh, what did they do? They didn't pay their rent. They didn't know. They did everything right. But, you know, when capitalism is predatory, everyone loses. And that's what we're allowing with certain policies that aren't in place, like rent control, like rent subsidies, like even if you are being evicted, to have legal counsel required for people who are being evicted, legal assistance, because they may just be making it by with their rent and they don't have the money for a legal battle. So they have to go. Yeah. Right. We, you can't, you know, I, I always play monopoly with my son and he would always lose. Right. And because I'm a 47 year old man and he's, he's 12. And so I said to him, just change out the game pieces. You always play as the shoe. Maybe you should play as the dog. And guess what? He's still lost. It doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> right. matter what your game piece is. My wife came in and said, if you guys are going to play Monopoly, here are the rules that have to change. You know, Brian, when you go around and go, you only get $100, Evan gets 200 When you land on a property, you pay full rent. But when he lands on a property, he only has to pay half rent. Because again, if you want to change the outcome of the game, if you want to make an equitable and just game, you have to change the rules such that the rules allow for equitable play. And, and that's the only way we do that is through policy. And we're not doing that as aggressively as we should. The hope I see is that Florida in the 2020 election, minimum wage, a $15 minimum wage outpolled both Biden and Trump. Mm-hmm. And so there was bipartisan support in a state like Florida, which is typically read for a $15 minimum wage. That should be national, right? If, if you can't let people make a living and have a home, then what kind of living are they making? And now we've seen all of that kind of negligence that we've had politically and from a policy standpoint play out right on the open stage with COVID. Yeah. And maybe that's one of the, you know, regardless of solution sets, because when you start to apply to all kinds of different things, there's all kinds of solutions. So just to be uh, politically unbiased just for a moment, whatever those are, you can't get to those solution sets unless you have knowledge or you're talking about those facts in those living conditions that you speak of. Many of us, you know, live in our bubbles and we don't really even know what those living conditions are like, right? That you can't come up with solutions if, you're, if you don't even have an awareness, uh, part of the point. Well, and, you know, there's a program that we run called City Health. You can find it at cityhealth.org, which sets out nine different evidence-based policies that anyone can implement in their, in their communities to improve health. And mm-hmm. it is unfortunate that we tend to think of public health as being aligned with one side of the aisle or the other, when it really is the dirt on which those aisles are built. There is nothing you can do in our society if you're not healthy. You can't get good grades in school, you can't graduate on time, you can't be your best self at work, you can't worship the way you want to. Mm-hmm. And the foundation of our house is cracked. And we have to really repair it by rebuilding our public health system. Yeah. Even the purest capitalists would want uh, a sound economic base upon which to sell their goods and services. And that's part of what you're talking about is providing that sound economic base. I want to shift gears a little bit, bring it back to a little bit to you know, pure health care. This might surprise you, but one of the 
themes that we are talking more and more about within HFMA is to focus on the cost effectiveness of health. And, and when I say that, I say not cost effectiveness of health care, but cost effectiveness of health, which if someone were a diehard fee-for-service executive might scare them, but because we're built on this healthcare model. And because of that, I wonder sometimes how eager some parties in the healthcare industry will be to implement cost-effectiveness strategies when you really focus on the total cost of health, because there is so much money to be made in a fee-for-service environment. Again, I continue to think a lot about that. I'm trying to think of ways that we could contribute to a solution set there. But then sometimes I think, oh my gosh, I'm swimming upstream. I mean, should I care about cost-effectiveness of health? I mean, I know why I care, but and then if we should care, then how do you think we should effectively communicate that to our, our industry? You know, I read something from, from Katie Gilfalon, who I think mm-hmm. is on your team. And she is. And she said, you know, healthcare must expand from addressing acute needs to managing all aspects of patient health. And, and she's 100% right. But it is not healthcare's job to manage all aspects of a, of a patient's health. That has to be done collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Do you, you and I are old enough to remember the, the old Lucille Ball episode where Lucy and Ethel are pulling the candies off the conveyor belt, right? Yep. No matter how fast they went, the candies kept coming out quicker and quicker. And they would just keep grabbing candies, grabbing candies. But when I look at that and I watch that, that, that clip, I always wonder why no one pulled the plug out of the machine. Mm. That's what we have to do, right? We've seen it in the book, The American Healthcare Paradox. We know that we're spending a lot on healthcare and not getting a really good return on investment. And that health is the downstream outcome of all those things that preceded us, our housing, our education. And so we kind of compartmentalize this conversation around healthcare, but it really is a societal problem. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what healthcare, I think, is, is kind of doing right now with the move to social needs and somewhat of the unfortunate medicalization of social determinants is trying to grab all those candies off that belt. And we need to partner with how do we pull the plug? How do we have um, real upstream interventions that are policy-driven, that are government-driven, you know, that, are, that use the data that we're collecting? I mean, you know, the High Tech Act brought electronic medical records to most of healthcare at a cost to the taxpayer, $27 billion. And, and I want those data. I want to see, and I don't want an individual patient's data. I want you to aggregate it. I want you to aggregate it between your hospital and the hospital three, three streets down so we can look comprehensively at where health is happening. And if you are collecting social needs information, hunger, housing insecurity, give us those data too. And then let's plan together, government, public health, private sector business, and healthcare together to really understand how we maximize the health of our community. And, and I, I hope that people who need medical care get all the medical care that they need. And I hope that there are some people who never have to set foot in a hospital mm-hmm. and they don't get any medical care because they need it, right? Because their, their communities were constructed for them to achieve their optimal health. But we need to move from a patient-centric view to a community-centric view. And that's hard because the payment structures that you mentioned earlier, if you're paid patient by patient, it is hard to kind of engage in this broader you know, view. 
But I think the way we do it is we start sharing our data. We start looking at the data at a community level, because ultimately, if we address things at a community level, then you will see less acute patients. You'll see patients who aren't you know, having issues with hunger or housing instability. But those have to be solved at a community level, even if we have food banks and you know, housing assistance folks in our healthcare system. Those are just band-aids. We need cures. Mm-hmm. Boy, so well-spoken and so well-said. I, I do appreciate that. I do have one exit question that is a little simpler than all these really complex issues. I'm reading more and more about um, this pandemic really turning into an endemic, which I think in, again, layman's terms means like this is going to be here forever. And that sounds scary. I mean, does that mean like we're going to be in this exact same situation forever? Or what, what does that mean for all of us? I think people are understanding that the idea of COVID zero is, is probably going to be more elusive than we thought. Mm. And that we'll see some level of COVID infection in years to come. But we have control over this. You know, we need to get every American that can be vaccinated, vaccinated. We need to make sure that everyone else in the world who wants to get vaccinated, I mean, we're, we're trying to desperately to convince people to get vaccinated in the U.S. when other countries would be more than happy to take the vaccines that we don't want. Right. So we have to understand that, you know, I'm, I am all for individual freedom and I'm all for, you know, medical decision making. But this is about us functioning in our society, in our collective. And the best thing we can do to control the, you know, the impacts of COVID going forward is to vaccinate. And, you know, for me at this point, this isn't a debate anymore. Uh, if you tell me two plus two is seven, I'm going to tell you it's four. And, and that's about it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a lot of education and we've done, you know, the hard work because I think, you know, my wife always says, you don't get a divorce, you earn a divorce. <laughs> a lot of things you have to do before you get divorced. And I think the man, I think vaccine mandates are the same way. They're, they're you know, they, they are limits on people's freedom and they do, you know, make people have choices, you know, forced choices. But we've earned it. We've mm-hmm. done what we can. We've educated people. And now it's time to, to get our nation vaccinated and get our nation past COVID and make sure it is really something in the rearview mirror and not something that is dictating our society going forward. Yeah. Well, you don't have to convince me. I'm um, fully vaccinated. I can't wait to be eligible for uh, the booster. Unfortunately, I'm not old enough. And fortunately, I'm not, I don't have one of those conditions that would suggest that I get it earlier. But again, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent about vaccinations. And so let me, let me jump onto that bad wagon um, with you. Well, again, thank you so much. Um, you've been again, generous with your time. I love conversations that make us think we don't take policy positions as an association, but it doesn't mean we're disinterested in that. We're very interested in policy. And you've raised a ton of issues that are really important for our members to think about. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app. And if you'd like to tell us how you felt about today's episode or any other, you can reach our team at podcast at hfma.org.